Hi everybody, welcome to episode one of Chin Up. I'm one of your hosts, JB. So just wanted to start with an apology. If you are watching this podcast rather than listening to it, the video does cut out at half an hour intervals. Turns out that tech teething issues do occur in your first episodes of podcasts. Nightmare, shocker. Um, but this sound is unaffected. So we really, really enjoyed putting this podcast together. Hope you guys enjoy it, listening to it, and the, the loss of being able to see our faces doesn't hamper your enjoyment. So without further ado, welcome to episode one of Chin Up. Right. We're in. We are in. Episode one of Chin Up. See the double meaning? That's clever, isn't it? The good thing about that is there aren't many podcasts that use lazy puns as titles, so, you know. Original you know, in that respect. So. Do you know how many podcasts there are in the world? I'd imagine... Have a guess. 100,000? Keep going. Million? Nearly. 850,000. Crazy. And we're the best. <laughs> so. Just so you guys watching don't feel like... Why are they so unprofessional? There is no plan, and you're you're quite if a planner. You already guessed. Yeah. yeah, you're quite a planner. So I I thought when you said, "Oh, do you want to do a podcast?" I thought, right, he's going to want to like do some research and spreadsheet it all out, and then we'll get some proper kit. No, no, no. If you could see that this this idea came two days ago, it's now Friday, and um, here we are with a little mic on top of a slate. And just tell everyone what you did have underneath here before. Um, it was a copy of. Middle Earth Traveller, sketches from the, the, the hit cinema, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, but we thought we'd up the, up the production value. Um, just on the off chance this goes anywhere in, in five years' time, and we're doing like Joe Rogan numbers, we are currently recording this with a TV behind the camera, and Joe Biden has just overtaken Trump in Georgia, which is like the key swing state in the US elections, just as a little timestamp. So when we look back on this, we'll go, because it's quite a a cool point in political history, this, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, But this, so so what's the idea for you? You you obviously had called me on Wednesday, saying we want to do a sort of strength and fitness podcast. What what made you want to do something? Well, I think at the moment, particularly, um, hence having a double meaning in chin up having the, the mental health side of things being worth a mention given what we've got going on at the moment yeah. um, especially with regards to us I'm sure we'll discuss this in more detail today with having the gyms closed yeah. um, obviously for a lot of people whether it's due to like the physical release or the mental release is really important for a lot of us just checking the mic works happy with that yeah. Um, so yeah so I think wanted to bridge obviously the physical side of things along with the mental side of things and like I think at the moment a lot of topics are worth discussion and people are taking like they're they're putting across their beliefs and opinions quite a lot at the moment Mm. I think it's quite good just to add to the add to the discussion I'm one of those people (laughs) Um, let's just do a little introduction because you're not on Twitter I'm not on Instagram and we've both got followings on each Mm -hmm. and I don't think our audience will necessarily know much about the other one yeah. So, I for those of you on uh, that follow JV's Instagram, we, we've known each other for what eight nine years now. Yeah, I'd say. I think so. Been training together for most of that time, but on and off. Yeah. I'd say you've been my sort of most consistent training partner throughout all of that. Um, so I'm boxing commentator and, and broadcaster. Do a bit, a few bits for Sky, a few bits for the Zone in the States, and then um, obviously, yeah, just fitness has been. We're both kind of, I suppose, ex-athletes in that sense, aren't we? From, from years ago and then we we met at your uh, old gym um, where you used to work and I think really I, I categorise our relationship as being one where you provide all of the knowledge, experience, facilities, information and guidance and I essentially leech off that it's like you know you get a whale shark that's moving through there and there's a pilot fish just on the side of it. Guess which one of those <laughs> But you know, it, you've you've become a great friend of mine. I'm, it, I'm it very works. yeah. So at any point throughout this series, however long it lasts, if I ever say we in terms of knowledge that we've acquired, what I mean is James has acquired it and been kind enough to share it with me for free. And, and so yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. He's taught me a lot, um, and I think it's quite cool to actually sit down and, and talk about all the things that we've sort of like learnt over the years and that we've 
like shared for experiences of training and talking and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, quite quite excited to do this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what we want to do, right? We want to keep it all very conversational, pretty much just I guess document the kind of discussions that we'd have anyway. Yeah, I think I think actually there. I often when we go for coffees and stuff, I sort of think this would be quite useful advice for a lot of people. And you forget, don't you, when you're at a level where you are, where you're scientifically read, and I'm at a level where I can leak all that information for free. <laughs> I, I, but a lot of people don't know this kind of stuff. I was with a friend of mine, Charlie Sims, yesterday, who manages a lot of fighters, and he's just started a fitness journey. I think he's like 26, 27. And the questions he was asking me, to him, seemed like really obvious. It all seemed really difficult questions. To me, they were so obvious, and I thought, how is it you don't know this? But you forget what the average person doesn't know. Yeah. And as you say, when you've got so much information out there on the internet, you, you don't really have a way of filtering what's good information and what's not. Yeah. So hopefully through some of the questions that we've got from people on my Twitter and your Instagram, we get an idea of the kind of things people want to know and we can try and discuss through you know, research and our experience what has worked for us and, and what we think is the best yeah. way to approach training. Yeah, absolutely. And I think quite often as well, the the basics are neglected quite a bit as well. Yeah. So like judging by some of the types of questions we get and what information out there is popular, the basics are enormously neglected, almost like forgotten about. Yeah. And the thing is, without those basics in place and the foundations in place, all of the advanced stuff's never actually going to do anything. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it's all uh, got to be kind of laid out and kind of explained a little bit better. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think even at this point, it's it's worth noting that your your physique, your your mental health, your health in general, is a is a like a genetic expression of the lifestyle choices that you are making at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's not like an end goal. Like a number of people go, even Charlie said to me yesterday, how do I get a six pack? But I said to him, so the thing is you're thinking about it like it's an end point. Like once you've got it, it's then there. Yeah. But it's not, it's a continuous process where you and I could easily get out of shape. I mean, you don't. I regularly just slide in and out, as you know, because of work and lifestyle, and sometimes you get lazy. And it, but it's about knowing your body and understanding that there is no end goal here. It's not like a diet where you know eight weeks and then you're done. You have to make changes that you think are sustainable in your life, and you have to be willing to make them. You have to want to make them. And I think that's the thing is when people compliment you about your physique or say, "How do I get this?" or "How do I get that?" it's understanding that well, are you ready to make a sustained weekly commitment to your life from now until as long as you want to maintain that physique or that strength or that yeah you know that that point of health in your life absolutely and i think as well talking about it being like a weekly commitment i think a lot of people really blow it out of proportion as to what's actually necessary in order to make something that's like make some changes that are worthwhile so a lot of people yeah. would be like oh right okay i need to calorie count every week I need to um, not have carbs at all and um, one of like, the questions we had today was someone like saying how do I avoid like X food like pizza yeah. for example whatever yeah. it might be it's not really the point like if you look at it like that as if it's some sort of enormous change which is incredibly uncomfortable to make long term it's never gonna never gonna work mm. yeah of course um, so we've got quite a few questions to, to get through should we have a look at some of them yeah, yeah and then talk around them because I guess pe people have asked some fairly specific questions but at the same time uh, I think there are a lot of points that you know will we'll cross over and, and you know questions that will kind of merge into one another um, as a good starting point Thomas Merlin has asked he said, how do you stay motivated during these strange and unusual times? I'm somebody that used to work out four to five times a week without fail, but I've lost all motivation since it became apparent that we were going to be living like this. What keeps you going? Um, do, you, do you want to start with this? Yeah, I mean, look, what do you think, what was your experience at first when we maybe had, we, when we had the first lockdown? So at the moment, this is going out at the start of the second lockdown, with yeah. day two. From the first lockdown, how did you feel? As soon as gym shut, what were your kind of like feelings towards it? What did you do instead of going to the gym? Yeah, uh, so 
I was very lucky in that by pure chance, uh, Danny Wilson, who runs uh, Boxing Science, who actually got a really great podcast for those of you that are fight fans and are interested in, in the sort of science behind the, the training. We, he, we can put it in the show notes, can't we? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Danny very kindly sent me as a, as a thank you just for a few bits and bobs, a pack of resistance bands, different resistance, and that actually helped to you, you can do a lot with those and actually there is a question on the kinds of stuff you can do with resistance band so i relied on skipping rope which i'm not a great fan of running just because i've got a few mechanical imbalances as you know and it doesn't doesn't do a lot for my joints so skipping's a it's a really good way of burning calories and helps your coordination and it's a full body sort of workout resistance band exercises we'll get into some of the ways you can use those um, as well um, and then just body weight circuits. It's not ideal. And ultimately my, my thought was, well, I'm just trying to stave off a bit of decline here and get myself, um, I suppose, just working in a slightly different way. You have to understand if you don't have access to a barbell and, and the weights you would normally be lifting, you're not going to get the, the same sort of gains and you're not going to make the same progression that you were on track for maybe in January. But that's okay. So you have to think, Instead of thinking what I can't do, think what can I do? Do so you have to switch it into a positive, I think. Did you feel like the transition came quite easily? Like, was it kind of as fairly clear as, right, lockdown occurred here, then I got straight into exercising? Like, did you have a, a bit of a period, like Tom says here, um, I'm guessing he's, he's asking the question because he's alluding to the fact that he's perhaps not so motivated or yeah. feeling so motivated. Did you have that same kind of feeling? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And, and obviously you're when you don't know how long something's going to last for if you've got an end point like we have hopefully in this lockdown where Boris has said whatever happens December the 2nd we lift restrictions mm -hmm. well so for four weeks like I've said to you can I hire a couple of dumbbells off you and I know with the weights of the dumbbells and things I can do with those that I can keep my body in a certain uh, condition but with the first lockdown there was no end point or no real yeah, it wasn't, wasn't at all clear was it no still not particularly clear it's not particularly clear yeah. and i think we are all we are all sort of operating on a bit of guesswork including fortunately the government but we we are i suppose all in it together so it's just what can i do what can i how can i make the most of my my time and the workouts that i've got for, for me the most important thing generally speaking and obviously at the moment when you're in isolation it does rely on you maybe having a support bubble with someone else that you can train with but the one thing that's kept me motivated over the years generally speaking is being accountable to somebody else so i know if we've agreed to train i will go and train that day whereas if i haven't got you and i haven't got a time booked in there'll often be mornings where i wake up and think oh i just have an extra hour in bed yeah uh, and that i think it applies to a lot of us there's nothing that makes you do exercise other than you and so if you have somebody else, so I had uh, Molly McCann who fights in the UFC, she was on Fight Island. She was dieting down to her fight, um, I think for about 10 weeks. And I was accountable to her. So we kind of made a list of foods that we were just gonna cut out together that she was gonna cut out. And because I knew if I ate anything bad, I'd be sort of letting her down. Yeah. That helped me to make better choices when I, was, uh, when I was shopping. So little things like that, be accountable to someone whether you're in person you're meeting to train outside or whether you are going to say right let's eat healthily for a few weeks let's do this let's do that be accountable to that other person psychologically it definitely does something a little bit different and it stops you from sometimes making those poor day-to-day -day decisions yeah is that yeah. Fair? yeah for sure i reckon so and i think another thing to uh, to mention on that is that tom mentions about staying motivated and yep. i think We've got to have a realisation that motivation is a very finite resource. Yeah. And if you're constantly relying on motivation to do something, your the likelihood that you're going to stick to that thing probably isn't going to be very long lasting. Right. So I think another thing to remember is that like whatever it is you want to get done, whether it's working out, whether it's um, adhering to a particular way of eating, is to try and say, right, I need to try and habitualise this behaviour. So obviously it's made very difficult at the moment given the situation that mm. we're in, but we have to boil it down to, right, just because you're not training in the gym doesn't mean that it's not training, you're just gonna be doing it elsewhere. Yeah. So for example, if you're used to training after work at like five o'clock or whatever, right, you're now not going going to work, you're working from home, still train at five o'clock, just get it done just as exactly the way you used to do it, right. keep it nice and habitual. Um, and then, just as you said yourself then before, like you might have an extra hour in bed because you can, again try and work yourself to that usual pattern that you would otherwise be doing mm. I think that's a really really key way of doing it because then you're relying on a degree of autonomy and just to 
carry on doing what you're doing. You're not leaving anything to chance or by choice. It's just something that you just do. And also, I think you, you, your body clock does adapt to getting used to doing certain things at certain times of day. And, sure. and so if you, if you start to break that pattern, it will become harder to, to train and harder to do things because you're, you know, it's like we tend to get hungry at the same time of the day because if you eat routinely at those times of the day, you want a coffee at the same time in the morning, you want food at the same time of night. If you suddenly start to break those patterns, you mess with your body's clock and then you don't know what kind of chemical imbalances that will cause and how, how that might manifest itself. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, what have we got? Should we, was the, um, there's one on hypertrophy. I'm gonna get this one up, here we go. So, um, bit, bit of a compliment on my Instagram. Two questions, how do I grow quads like you? How do I get quads like JB? Have better genetics. Yeah, have better genetics, like pick your parents better. That's the, that's the <laughs> thing. But no, in all seriousness, I think, a lot of people are kind of like blessed in certain departments hypertrophy wise so we've all got that like that one mate who like barely does any training and has got a ridiculously big calf <laughs> and never trains it and then you've got one mate that does 8,000 calf raises and has got like, <laughs> a look like a six year old boy scout <laughs> so I think you've got to um, kind of have a certain degree of acceptance of like whatever you've got that's going to be like your not your ceiling is completely the wrong word but like you it's know, your genetic potential. It's, it's going to be quite relative, isn't it? Yeah, your potential is going to be limited somewhat. Yeah. But if, let's say, for example, you feel like you might have like a problem body part, say it's like calves or quads, you've got to remember they all grow like any other body part. So make sure that you're giving them sufficient muscular tension, making sure that you are doing sufficient amounts of sets per week. So with regards to that, probably looking at about 10 to 20 sets per week. Start on the low end, look to progressively overload those sets, um, whether it's by... Um, lifting the same weight for more reps or uh, lifting a heavier weight for the same number of reps or even both just progressing it however you can and over time you will see some muscle growth especially when you know all the other stuff's in place as well like adequate nutrition adequate calories adequate protein intake rest and recovery it will all come together and in, in the next few episodes we'll we'll go a bit more specific on what those look like. But yeah. we get, we'll, we'll be a bit more general today just because this is the first episode. The, one of the really interesting notions that I think I've, I've personally learned is the, the value of patience in your training. And you've mentioned there progressive overload. I think it's a concept that's a little bit alien. It's not completely alien to people who train. I think most people get the fact that, you know, if you're lifting more weight for more reps, you're gonna get stronger, you're gonna get bigger, etc. But I sometimes think people don't necessarily understand how slow that process can be. For example, you are currently working on a, a long-term goal, um, this 666 thing. So you're doing a 600-pound squat, 600-pound deadlift, and a, and a sub-six-minute mark in the same day. Now, anyone who knows the, the narrow window of sort of, uh, I, I suppose... <laughs> I suppose fitness and strength required to do those two things in, in a 24 hour space, probably 12 hour space, mm -hmm. know how, how fine tuned your body's got to be. But your progression, and you've been squatting for many, many years, and you're a very, very good squatter, has, has to be so carefully calculated. You're not making huge leaps. It's not like I'm squatting 180 one day and 220 the next. Everything is very, very careful. And I think too many, and, and this is, I feel it's a male problem it with the ego more than it is with women. Women don't have much, anywhere near as much of an ego as guys in the gym. Yeah. Guys will deadlift 80 kilos and then they go right straight to 100. You shouldn't even be thinking about that, that kind of leap. It should be incremental, 2.5 kilo leaps, build that base of volume, get the reps in, let your body adapt, because that's what your body is doing essentially. It's adapting to stresses, tensions, everything from your bones and your, your ligaments to the muscles. It, and you have to accept that this is a slow process and if you don't go through that process at the right speed and you rush it two things are going to happen you'll lift with poor form and you're probably going to get injured that's yeah. going to then set you back and you you will never really make that long-term process and that's what progress and that's what you see in the gym is, is many many guys that take the leaps too soon don't adapt properly get injured and go back and repeat the cycle and then they never really make those improvements so when you think about moving up through those weights small small increments check your ego and the long-term progress as a result for, from my experience from your experience i think you'd, you'd agree will, will come when it's supposed to come yeah yeah 100 percent. and i think as well to add to that make sure that you're um 
keeping some sort of like training log with even if it's like oh. just on your phone or notes 100 percent. and so you actually know what you're doing rather than guessing every time you're going to the gym and in, in addition to that actually following a program as well yeah because again if you do things haphazardly how can you expect to like actually get any results but, the, yeah you don't not that's not necessarily to say that you have to be like ridiculously meticulous about everything but there should be some evidence of progression over time I think um, having a framework of a program is ideal to kind of support that. Yeah, definitely. Um, there was a question that related to that. Oh, is this the running one? Yeah, maybe it was. I think it was. I think there was a question related to, and I haven't got it written down, but I remember reading it. Was the length of time, the ideal length of time for for a program, and, and obviously there's no right or wrong answer to this. Yeah. But when should you when should you change things up? Would you say? that if you're logging and doing all the things that you should be, a good point of reference is when you start to plateau. Yeah, I'd say so. Like, I think stick with the same program for as long as it still is working. Right. It's that old like, phrase, isn't it? Like, if it ain't broke, like, don't fix it. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. So I would say you also have to remember that a lot of people will start to get a bit bored, mm -hmm. however. So, and that, that's just as valid a reason to change something up, in my opinion. So especially if you're working with people. So if I'm writing a program for a client and it's been the same program for like 12 weeks, it's not necessarily exactly representing good value for money on their part. Mm. And also they're probably going to get bored to the tears of it. If you're not enjoying your training, like what's the point? Of course. So what I try and do is have all of the overarching principles are there and present. So progressive overload, um, certain movements that they're comfortable with and that they can knowingly progress on they'll always be present but other elements of the programme will change like every four to six weeks cool. and I think that's a really good way of keeping people engaged but without just doing the same old thing every single time yeah yeah. because do you know what sometimes I've come to you with a, with a specific injury or an area that's just not quite feeling good for a number of weeks and you will just give me a variation, often like single leg stuff, or, or it might be banded work, or something that can, can train the area, whether it's like your glutes or your hamstrings, to, to adapt and to get around those kind of mechanical problems. And actually what's amazing is sometimes I'll stick to those. You, you put me on some, um, some sort of like elevated leg split squats, because yeah. my back wasn't great, and it just took the stress out of my, my hips and my lower back. And I progressed in those for about the last four to five weeks, and my back's been great since. And I've gone back to squatting and, and what I normally do. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. So just little like little um, changes, little tweaks, just to keep you progressing, but without completely overhauling everything. Yeah, and um, I found that question as well. So, so the starting point to that question um, regarding changing up a program was, um, what's your opinion on the five three one program? So, for those of you who don't know, the of Jim Wendler's. Yeah, Jim Wendler's program. So, for those of you who don't know, 531 is a program by strength coach Jim Wendler, um, and it's, it's it's a really good program. Like as a kind of a skeleton, it basically has you doing of the big lifts, so being squat, deadlift, bench press, overhead press. Mm -hmm. The first week, three sets of five with uh, as many reps as possible set on the last set. Next week, three by three with as many reps as possible set in the last set. Final week you go five, three, and then and as many reps as possible set, then you deload on the fourth week. And that's pretty much like the whole way through the program is mm. the um, the pattern. So the good thing about it is it has you doing all of like the big lifts. So if the big lifts suit you, then fantastic. Um, because you know, they're gonna involve quite a lot of muscle mass. You're gonna be shifting quite uh, high loads relative to other movements in there. So of course, if you've got like more load on your body, you're producing more tension, so it might be better for kind of hypertrophy gains, mm. strength gains. The bang for your buck with those lifts is it's massive. It's, it's better than any of the other exactly. lifts, isn't it? Exactly. So if you are working with that as your main kind of like foundation and template for your program, you could do a whole lot worse. Mm. However, I think as it was originally written, and over the years, it's kind of come in various forms. He's updated it, tweaked it, and stuff. If you're following in its original form, I'm not a big fan of how low the volume is because you're only ever actually really doing one heavy um, set. Like an AMRAP thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what he gets you to do is he gets you to take a one rep max, you take 90% of that, and that's your training max. Mm. So you've already lost 10% of intensity that you're capable of. Then you base the other sets on percentages of that 90%. Mm. So you're already down by quite a bit. So if you're going through your first cycles of it, you're probably working... Like, sorry, this is just 
um, mental arithmetic here, but like probably something about like fifty percent of your max up to about seventy five percent. So that does allow for progression, though. To be fair, yeah, because if you don't have that twenty five percent, it's very hard if you hit that ceiling to then go anywhere. And I think also the reason he's done it is to stop people from ego lifting. So yes. rather than starting out like, oh yeah, two years ago I hit this number, so I'm going to base it off that. Yeah, it gets you to actually take back a step and start a bit lighter. Yeah, um, but there's plenty of stuff you can do to. Not even in my opinion necessarily make it better. This is kind of um, uh, variances that he's put in his own work. So he's, he gets people to do something called first set last, which is where you work up to your AMRAP set, your as many reps as possible set, then you back off and you do some more volume at the lighter loads. So that um, kind of ticks the box of getting a bit more volume in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other things he does called like joker sets, which is where you work up to your AMRAP set, then you start to do heavier sets afterwards. Um, which is something else that could work, but, but obviously but that's that's like you not enter into that territory of potential injury, and there's a higher risk factor because you want to be. Well, I, I don't know if this is right, but I feel as though you'd want to be as fresh as possible for those heavy sets when you're exerting yourself the most. Yeah, quite, quite possibly. I think like unless your technique and skill acquisition has really been nailed down, mm. probably wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Yeah, but. Also, we're kind of like, you're getting into the danger zone of like bastardizing the program as well. Like the more you're changing the original program, the less it becomes the original program. Yeah, of course. Kind of thing. And it's, it's way too easy to get carried away with. But one other thing that I do like about it, he himself says that it is just a template. So it's well worth buying his book. Like he's got some really good information in it, but he himself says that it is just a template. So you could, going back to what we were saying earlier about changing up the routine, you could always keep the 531 template in there with the exercises um, and then just change the assistance exercises afterwards. Right. So you could have on the squat day, you could have all your posterior chain accessory exercises like RDLs, good mornings, good mornings whatever yeah. it might be. On the deadlift day, you could have all your quad based ones, leg press, front squats, etc. etc. Mm. Um, and you could quite happily change those up whilst keeping the, the meat and potatoes of the program as is. Yeah. Nice consistent. Great. So yeah, so it's a good good programme. Great. Just has a few kind of uh, things that I think are worth tweaking is all. Of course. Yeah, what do you reckon for the next one? Um, <clears throat> Maybe one we could like talk about mental health a little bit more. Yeah. As, as we wanted to kind of have that as a bit of a bit of a bias. So, I mean, what do you think of this one? Um, what do you think about gyms being shut during lockdown? And I assume they mean this time round. Ha- has the... Uh, I've only I've been a bit lazy on this and probably read the headlines and, and Twitter rather than actually looked at any articles but from what I've seen in my periphery there's been quite low transmission rates uh, data wise in leisure centres and gyms is that right? Yeah. Right. Well if we're going to have data driven decisions which is what the government seem to, to be putting forward as their the, the, the sort of underpinning of their decision now to go into four weeks of lockdown I think it, when you think about the benefits of uh, you know, exercise for your mental health in terms of getting out of the house and doing something that's, that's proactive and positive. Um, I, I think it's maybe a bit of an oversight. I know you will have a bit of a bias in this because you own a gym. Yeah. But when you think of the precautions that I know you've put in place in terms of cleaning, in terms of preparing everything and, and creating an environment that is as safe as can possibly be and the same with, with the gym that I go to down the road, it, it seems to me almost... You know, provided you're taking your own precautions, a very, very safe environment in which to to train and do things that benefit us in so many different ways. So personally, I think it's a bit of an oversight to close gyms, though I understand why they've done it as a as a blanket measure. I I, I get it. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. So for everyone listening, just as Chris briefly touched on, I own a gym. We had to close uh, yesterday, Thursday. Form in Seven Oaks. Yep. Good little plug. Thank yeah. you. And um, yeah, so uh, as he said, we, we've put all the necessary stuff into um, into effect, like cleaning after every single client, mm. anything that gets touched gets sanitized properly. We have uh, a very strict policy on how many people are allowed in the gym at one time to kind of ensure enough airflow. Um, air conditioning um, also has to be like serviced, regularly cleaned, again, for the ventilation reasons, but as you again you said at the start it's very clear I've got a bias obviously I own a gym mm. I want it to stay open of course for my own interest my clients interests of and, course. and of course the, the thing is as well that that relies on your diligence as the owner of the gym and obviously Joe as well 
to, to, to put into place those precautions. Mm -hmm. you, you know, the government, it's very hard to regulate and to, to standardise everybody. That There will be some really lazy owners that aren't doing anything and have just got sod it, will open and we know our clients and they know us and everyone yeah. does things at their own risk. So you, you are a particularly diligent person and you've put those measures in place. There's nothing to really um, enforce you doing that therefore yeah. that, that it is harder for them to, to sort of know this is what's happening if they guarantee that everyone was behaving as you are mm -hmm. I, I don't think they have a problem with opening gyms but the problem is no. you can't, you can't I mean, guarantee like obviously I've got no way of proving this but I would like to think the majority of people would be doing it yeah like properly I think so yeah but yeah it's a, it's a really difficult one I mean to go back to do I think I should be shut or not I'm really kind of torn like if I if I remove my like biased gym owner's hat and say, right, let's look at this as objectively as possible. Transmission rates do seem like they're very low, and like it's like fractions of a percent. Mm. However, if we're following the science, what we have to say is like, how good actually is the science? So track and trace, I'm assuming, is where they're getting all the data from. And as we've all you know, been hearing in the news, it's got potential flaws. So if we're trying to make decisions on flawed data, maybe the transmission rate is worse. Right. I don't know. Yeah. And that's the, that's the tricky part. And I, and I think not taking that into consideration, again, going back to kind of the spin we wanted to put on like some of our conversations we're having on the pod, the, like the risk to people's mental health is pretty high, I would say, from not being able to exercise. Mm. And I was having this discussion with one of my clients the other day, and I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people there are certain populations of people who can't or don't like to exercise outside of a gym. So, right. for example, if you think at the moment we're in November now, weather is obviously dark, cold, people might not want to exercise outside. Mm. We're very lucky that we live in a nice area where like, we can probably exercise outside safely, mm. but a lot of people might not want to be able to do that, yeah. particularly people who feel vulnerable. So like. A lot of female clients have said that they wouldn't particularly want to run off busy roads um, when it's dark. They want to stick to like well-lit streets and right, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And like, where's the appeal? Yeah. <laughs> like just running up Seven Oaks High Street kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think we have to remember that, look, gyms are purpose-built places to go to exercise in. Um, and if they're shut, there is definitely going to be a, a reduction in people actually getting out and doing some training. and. You know, whether that's for their physical well-being, their mental well-being, I think we probably will see some sort of, um, you know, I hate to say it, but like suicide rates go up. Whether or not we can directly attribute that to the closure of gyms is maybe another topic, but it's certainly something which maybe, you know, that doesn't help. I think as well, economically speaking, we're going to see a lot of services overloaded almost after an economic lag. I mean, just talking purely from... from so it's a retail standpoint, you're going to get a lot of people that have been out of work in the last seven, eight months um, and have lost jobs with, with big branch closures of anything from Debenhams to you know, retail outlets that employ you know, 10, 15,000 people in the UK. Those people would normally go to other jobs. Well, they can't because there's nothing else. There are no other jobs hiring. So what's going to happen? They're, they're going to sign on. Um, they're, they're going to look for any kind of government assistance. We know there are specific links with money and mental health, financial issues. Um, friend of mine, um, Katie Alpen Denon, is a, she works for Martin Lewis's think tank, and they do a lot of really good work on trying to alleviate the pressure on people and trying to sort of almost change financial policy to help people who suffer with mental health problems and are in financial difficulty because we know one exacerbates the other. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the the bigger picture with that is that. As you rightly mentioned, you know this is another contributing factor towards mental health problems because exercise is a really good fundamental way to combat those problems. Mm -hmm. So if you take that away, you're also putting, you're also finding swathes of people in financial difficulties. We all are to some extent this year. You're gonna get uh, the, the mental health services in in the UK flooded uh, to a point that they don't have the infrastructure to to cope. Yeah. And so what does that leave? It leaves people isolated. It leaves people financially desolate. It leaves people uh, often alone and indoors. And if you don't think, and of course, this is this is all speculation, but I think it's fairly educated speculation to say if those three aren't contributing factors to a rise in suicide rates, and if we do see a rise in suicide rates over the next six to twelve months, I, I think we can look at this period of time and actually 
trace at least some of the contributing factors to that. And it's very, very sad, but at the moment, it doesn't seem to be an end point to this other than maybe the, the, the sort of rolling out and standardisation of, of a vaccine that allows people to get back to some sort of normality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think as well, like, it's all it's all just looking to be like a bit of a vicious cycle, isn't it? Like, mm. not necessarily talking about gyms specifically here, but again, you're going back to how people are going to have less money coming in. We're probably going to be relying a lot more on charities to give, like, mental health support. Yep. And charities rely on donations. If people aren't as well off, they're not going to be donating mm. as yep. often. Um, and then we're going to be relying on mental health services that were struggling even before yeah. all of it going on. And were underfunded before. Exactly. So it's going to be a downside worse this time around. Yeah. Um, yeah, not a, not a good state of affairs. But mm. I think, like, obviously gyms and exercise are going to play a part in that. But I think it's also important to remember that, you know, exercise, eating well and stuff isn't necessarily just a panacea. Like, it's a great place to start to try and look into, like, fostering a good state of mental health. But it's not necessarily the be all and end all. Mm. There's nothing worse than, I was talking to a client yesterday about this, how when you're perhaps feeling a bit like, um, bit bit low in terms of mood or like you might have perhaps clinical depression or anxiety or whatever when people are like, oh, have you just tried eating a bit better or have you just tried going out for a bit of exercise? And by the way, the, the name of the podcast is Chin Up. It's the worst fucking thing you can yeah, say to exactly. someone mental health problems. It's t- tongue in cheek. Nothing worse than, than you know, in your era years ago oh chin up darling don't tell me to get my chin up like if you've got problems everyone's problems are relative and you know it's very easy especially at the moment to look and think blimey there's so many people that are worse off than I am and I'm actually in an okay position and I, and I feel like that I feel very lucky that I've got a bit of working place and I can get out and earn money but it's been a difficult year but it doesn't mean that just because there are loads of people worse off than I am that my problems aren't important to me and anybody watching your problems and your issues, whether they're mental health, whether they're finance, are as important as they need to be to, to you, regardless of where your problems sit on the scale of, you know, bad to, to absolutely fine. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Mm. Um, how about, um, oh, I thought this was a good one. Um, how to hold on to as much one rep max strength as possible whilst not having access to equipment. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but it's a real tricky one because yeah. the honest answer is you probably won't. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it all depends on how long this lockdown period is actually going to be. It proposed, obviously, to be four weeks. could be longer. Mm. The likelihood of you genuinely losing loads of strength in just four weeks is probably pretty slim. However, you are going to lose perhaps, like, certain... Um, abilities to display the skill of squatting, deadlifting, whatever it might be. Um, so at first it'll be like a bit of rustiness, I'd imagine, when you come back, but mm-hmm. otherwise it's probably going to be okay. But very important to remember, and that you will gain that strength back most likely faster than if you never had it at all. Also, we've only been back in gyms for 10 weeks. Yeah, something like that. It's not been long. It's not even long. Not so there's, long no, there's no chance that the average person with access to a standard gym is going to have had a normal training year or if you if you were hitting a one rep max then you you must have this year had access to facilities because you know eight to ten week block isn't enough so i i think this year you've almost got a kind of unless you have access to special kind of closed facilities you've got to just park your ambitions of making real progress yeah and do what you can rather than think about what you can't i agree yeah that's the key point is just doing what you can so it might be something as simple as whacking something heavy in a backpack and doing some weighted push-ups to improve your bench press strength, Yeah. for example. Um, and it might not have any like direct involvement, but it's certainly gonna stop um, like any potential atrophy of those muscles. It's a relatively similar movement pattern, so you get some sort of carryover. Um, it's, it's also gonna speed up the process when you go back um, to the gym because yes. there's nothing worse if you had three months doing absolutely nothing and then you went back to to squatting or to to lifting you, the, the the sort of the doms and the and the recovery you're going to find such a long-winded process when you go back you've been ticking over putting your body through those movement patterns on a regular basis when you do go back the, the wheels are oiled so to speak they haven't been turning over quickly but they've been moving therefore like you say the rust hasn't had time to accumulate and you can make an easier transition back into your normal routine when you do you know when, when lockdown is lifted 
Yeah, hit the ground running again. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, another important thing to remember, let's pretend that none of this was going on. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. Um, but even if in a normal training cycle, bar interruptions, you wouldn't necessarily always expect a linear gain in your one rep max anyway. No. So you'd have phases of training where you're perhaps accumulating some volume, you're working on a lot of hypertrophy, mm. you're, um, I don't know, maybe kind of fixing any... Um, markers that you might deem fit to be predictive of like injury mm-hmm. um, and then you might move into a phase where you're looking to shift some heavier weights then you'd have a peaking phase where you then might test your moderate max so that's not so you're not necessarily getting weaker in those other phases but you're certainly not directly training your one rep max and you, yeah you're, ne- you're never hitting a one rep max every single week no, it's if, just if not if you are there's better ways of training yeah 100% so. yeah you're right yeah so use this phase as a time to address some of those other issues get some volume in you know and, and like you say don't uh, don't focus too much on on something that at the moment is probably not really an attainable goal for, for most people in, in an average situation yeah Agreed. Um, what do you reckon for next? Um, shall we talk about this? Is a really interesting one. Um, let me just find this. So there's a couple of questions on disability training. Yeah. Um, so the first one here: I suffer with multiple sclerosis. Working out has greatly improved my life, um, strengthened my core muscles. Um, my query is regarding recovery um, in terms of drinks, supplements, food, etc. Um, so this is someone that's had multiple sclerosis for less than a decade um, in the late 30s and essentially MS is um, daily, it's a daily battle against I suppose the atrophy of, of your musculature and the more you can do the longer you can stave off that process of, of decline yep. but of course in doing so adequate recovery and supplementation could probably help in terms of improving speeding up recovery and retaining as much muscle mass as possible so this is i suppose actually although it is a very specific question to a very specific um, illness there are some more general principles in terms of supplements and recovery that would apply to a lot of people looking to sort of uh, build muscle to to, to maintain muscle mass that they've built yeah i mean I, i think you know goes about saying to start with that neither of us are like experts on ms or like or disability training but as you already alluded to the then more kind of like general overarching principles that you'd still want to adhere to yeah so like you said right at the start and as long as it's as long as you're able to do it safely like progressively overloading all your exercises and then kind of as a an addition to that kind of closely more related to the question i've got up here um if you're worried about recovery making sure that you are not overcooking the training volume. So a bit like how I mentioned earlier, start out on that lower, like of the 10 to 20 sets per week bracket, maybe even lower, you might be able to get progress with less, um, but build your way up um, so that you're not creating such a demand on your body with such a high recovery need in the first place. It's about frequency versus volume, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, I mean like you could define frequency as how you're spreading that volume out across your week. Yeah. So let's say for example, if you're doing 18 sets of quads a week, let's say. So that would be, so when you, when you say, so just to really break it down, so you're talking about any any movement that maybe involves quads, whether it's quad extensions or whether it was a, a deadlift, or, a squat, okay, yeah. fine. Yeah, so if you were to do six sets on a Monday, a Wednesday and a Friday, yep. that's 18. Yep. Or if you did it on a Monday and a Thursday, nine sets each. Mm-hmm. Obviously the first example has a, has a higher frequency. So it would, perhaps be that the six sets three times per week is a bit easier to recover from um, and you might get better quality sets because you're having to focus on fewer of those sets if that makes sense yep. so by the time let's if we go back to the monday thursday example sit uh, sets seven eight nine you're already pretty fried from one to six mm. um, whereas if you split it up a little bit more you might see uh, kind of a result was um, maybe a bit easier to recover from. Before what this person said to me, the frequency of training is quite key. So having to doing something every day, stretching, uh, making sure that your body is, is mobile and moving because it is a sort of degenerative musculature, yeah. uh, muscular disease. That that is is quite important. So frequency of training in terms of recovery, supplements, food. What kinds of things and principles do you recommend um, people people sort of taking to to help? I mean. Firstly, like it's just to 
again have this very general overarching principle of like healthy diet yeah. making sure you're getting in enough calories as well um, enough protein of course is particularly important what's, um, the, what's the general rule for sort of protein and body weight that kind of thing well I can't necessarily give any recommendations specific to MS but if you're around the ballpark of about 2 grams per kilo you're probably going to be 2 grams of protein per kilo so 70 kilos 140 grams of protein per day yeah per day yeah okay um, that'd be a good place to start what, what would that look like in terms of a, of a, of a I mean, so I'm pressing you a bit on the no, details, but I think it's interesting for people that don't necessarily weigh food or know what that would actually look like in terms of, so I don't know, what would you work in as an example, chicken breast, a steak? Yeah, so, it, so I mean like two eggs is about 14 to 15 grams of protein, okay. two whole eggs, medium ones. Um, 100 grams of raw chicken breast is about 20 grams of protein. Um, 250 grams of Greek yogurt is about 20 to 25 grams scoop away proteins about 20 to 30 depending on what brand you get yeah so just to give you a bit of an idea of how you could i think if you base most of your meals around the protein source um so if we're talking about like portions of 30 to 40 grams of protein per meal you're looking at about four to five meals a day i i get the impression that a lot of people don't actually get as much protein as they really need. I think a lot of people think they are, mm -hmm. but if you started to lay it out as you have there and weigh it and, and say to somebody, that's what you should be eating a day, yeah. a lot of people go, oh right, I'm probably I'm probably only eating half, maybe two thirds of what I really need to. Yeah. Um, so I guess for, for, for this specific example, making sure that you've got that in place as a, as a daily basic minimum is probably quite important. Yeah, yeah I'd say so. And again, if you are, if, if you struggle to get in the amount of protein, again, because it's such a, it's kind of like, it's a bit of an easy win. Mm. So it's something you could really easily improve. So just prioritize that as your like cornerstone of your meal. And then you can just add whatever else you need to it to make sure that you hit your kind of calorie requirements. Mm. On the topic of calorie requirements, you'd probably want to look to getting at least like maintenance calories in. So what, what do you I mean, mean by, by that, that is yeah. your, um, the amount of calories that you need per day to at least maintain your body weight. So, to be honest, this kind of mainly comes down to a bit of trial and error. Yeah. But you could probably start out, if you're like, quote unquote, normally active, you could probably take your body weight in pounds times above 14 to 16, and that would give you your rough um, maintenance calorie intake. Then you could literally just hop on the scales every morning. Let's do it. Let's just um, do it as a, as a yeah. little... Have a little look, so like, if you maybe just work with easy numbers, 200 pounds. I was gonna say, I'm, a, I'm about 200 pounds. Uh, so times what, what roughly times 15? So, yeah, so yeah, mid in the middle, say 15. Times 15. So that's 3,000 maintenance calories. Yeah, which is roughly. I, I think that's actually what I would yeah, eat in a, normal, in a normal day. So if you are, you know, using whatever method you like to track that number of calories, and your body weight isn't fluctuating by a lot week to week, mm -hmm. um, you're probably gonna be about on maintenance. Do you know that what you're doing is a roughly daily energy expenditure is meeting those calories and maintaining your body weight. Exactly, exactly. Um, and again, overarching all of this with the fact that we're not like experts on um, MS or disability training and how it relates to kind of recovery and, and stuff like that, but for a general principle, that would be a good place to, to start, I'd say. Cool. Um, great and then there was another good one here oh uh, this one so this one was um, regarding running and how to balance weight training in it so yes um, I thought this was a great question well so, specifically with what you're doing at the moment as well yeah yeah exactly it ties in really nicely so I used to do weight slash calisthenics but over the last two years got the bug for running I'd be keen to hear yours and James's thoughts on the best practice for weights brackets strength and conditioning when limited to perhaps one to two sessions per week. Yeah. Given the need to bank so many miles in running, you're not left with a great deal of time, so tough to cram it all in. Mm. So, the the thing that, so, bit of a shout out to my, my coach, Johnny. Um, he, at the moment, well worth checking him out on Insta. What's his Instagram? Um, it is, I think it's at Jonathan Payne. Cool. Cool surname. Um, he, um, basically at the moment, he and one of his other athletes, Fergus Crawley, are climbing Ben Nevis enough times to equal the vertical ascent of a marathon. And I think it works out to be something like 30 times. So 26 mile incline. Yeah, basically. Absolutely. Insane. Yeah, crazy. So they call it the vertical marathon. Wow. These guys are crazy. Um, 
raising money for Movember, great cause, obviously given the, the mental health ties. Yeah, well played um, for them, yeah. So um, yeah, definitely worth checking out their journey. But anyway, what Johnny has got me to do is kind of like the opposite to, I think it's Jack who asked this question, um, where my main focus is more on the weight training side mm, of things mm. and less on the running. So the principle should be to do as little as possible in the discipline which is of minor importance in order to yield the most results. So what I mean by that is, if we use this in, in Jack's example, so his main focus is running, right? So the most important thing to him is to get in enough mileage yeah. for running to, in order to progress whatever he needs to do um, and best use of his time as well. So he needs to get the best possible bang for his buck out of his one to two sessions per week when it comes to weight training. So I would literally think, be absolutely ruthless with your exercise selection. So, right, why am I doing a bench press if I'm a runner? Yeah. Get out. Yeah. Would I be better off uh, doing some sort of um, single arm uh, bench press or push-up variation instead? Maybe a bit of core training benefit. Um, uh, better shoulder stability, perhaps might have better carryover to running. Just concerned in terms of your efficiency per stride, it's gonna it's gonna give pay pay to better dividends. Yeah, exactly. So you define that as like running economy. So yeah. being able to um, exert more force with less energy. Yeah. So you might look into um, some drills which reduce your ground contact time in mm. the gyms. So perhaps some like single leg hops, mm. plyometrics. That kind of stuff will be the best possible use of your time versus going online and following like a two-day bodybuilding split. Agreed. For example, well, look, unless yeah. their goal is to improve their aesthetics, but the way the question was written, I'm assuming it's more kind of related to running and how they spoke about S and C rather than just training. Yeah, it sounds like it's a performance based rather than a, an aesthetics based. Exactly. That was that was one of the, the biggest battles I faced as a I, I'm an X four hundred and two hundred meter runner, um, and I think the weights were difficult because you know we were training three times a week on the track and you almost needed a recovery day afterwards but we would also have two or three weights days programmed in and I think looking back the volume was probably a little bit too high and everybody's different you have a much greater capacity for volume than I actually do in terms of in the weights room and I needed a lower volume um, and you're absolutely right in terms of ruthless exercise selection I feel looking back we were doing too much and you look at some of the elite um, runners, their weight sessions will be very, very stripped down, very basic. It's low volume stuff, getting in the work that you need to get, whether it's power cleans, supersetted with things like box jumps, plyometric exercises. Um, and if you're doing things like deadlift and squat, it was power focused, low volume, so that there's less recovery required. And then it means you're then fresher for the sessions that you are running, and therefore those sessions tend to be of better quality. So it, yeah, uh, it's that. That's only speaking from my my personal experience. Um, it's it's not easy to, to to merge the two. If you want to look great and have all of the beach muscles and also be a terrific runner, I don't think the two are really designed. Yeah, necessarily go hand to hand be hand together. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think so. And I mean, another thing in terms of like principles to incorporate S and C work is you may want to consider doing something which is quite lower body intensive on the same day as you run yes. so yeah. that will allow for more recovery days across the week whereas right. like perhaps for lack of a better word like traditional logic would dictate that you'd want to spread it out across the week a little mm. bit more you might find that actually if you do a lot of your intensive work in one day you've got more actual days to recover and it, it sounds counterintuitive because you think how would you have the energy after lifting weights to then go for a run but you or, are doing that yeah but you're doing that at the moment and, yeah. and it is it is doable. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's just something you adapt to. I think we don't give our bodies credit enough sometimes for what they're actually capable of handling if we, you know, admittedly not doing it haphazardly, but, you know, what within reason what we throw at our bodies, they will adapt, they will recover. Yeah. Um, and if you place the expectation on your body of being able to run and lift in the same day, probably going to be fine. Good. Yeah. Like so, um, how are we looking for time? Got time for a couple more? Yeah. Um, let's go for uh, this this was a good one as well um, this is from Fighting Pride UK um, on Twitter I'm just looking at the same one yeah oh cool perfect so how to train for strength whilst doing martial arts that require flexibility without bulk so I mean would you um, would you put like boxing in a martial arts category yeah kind of yeah I think so I think any combat sport 
I think flexibility is slightly more related to, um, I suppose, things like jiu-jitsu or karate or, um, you know, sports where you're using your legs a little bit more, maybe you're on the ground, boxing less so. Um, yeah, but but still, you would I think you would put boxing in that, in so, that category, yeah. I mean, I, I know obviously reading the question talks about flexibility a little bit more and you've already said like the demand in boxing isn't as high but in your experience being around a lot of elite fighters and seeing how they train do you think that their strength work particularly hinders that aspect i think if you're doing too if you're doing too much i think the the, the common uh, sort of narrative is that too 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 much sort of weight training up body mass limits your your mobility especially when there's so much rotational force and and so much sort of relaxed extension required to produce power through through the muscles and that sort of kinetic chain from the from the feet to the, the sort of tip of the fist and i think it, it limits your mobility a little bit um and so i think but there's a lot of push and pull in boxing especially with there's a lot of very old school listen you know like there's a slight rejection of new methods and and a lack of acceptance of new science in boxing i think they're a long way behind um you, you do a bit of uh training with michael hennessy isn't it i do yeah so, so i mean i would say for for boxing as we've already alluded to mobility and flexibility is probably a bit um like it's not a valuable quality to have necessarily yeah not to say that it's a bad one to have but it's not necessarily a good one over like i wouldn't put prediction of performance I wouldn't put flexibility very high up on the pecking order. No. So, like, if I manage to get Michael to be able to touch his toes, is that going to improve his boxing ability? No. Probably not. Um, and nor is it particularly predictive of injury either. That's, again, something which is really commonly held belief, is that if you're more flexible, you're not as prone to injury. It's mm. not necessarily the case. Right, okay. Um, and also what is quite interesting is there's some evidence to suggest that resistance training can be equally if not more beneficial for flexibility than traditional stretching oh really so again i think it's all kind of you can't pigeonhole all weight training into one kind of category like there's weight training then there's weight training so if if again you're following like a body part split that like that some bodybuilder wrote online yeah maybe you are going to perhaps get like some reduction in flexibility maybe there might be quite a lot of pushing going on through like the chest you might be able to um, reduce your shoulder range of motion, for example. But I think as long as you're following like a really well-designed, balanced out program, you probably don't really have anything to worry about with regards to um, reducing flexibility. Yeah, and I, and I do think, looking at the question again, it is really a, a, another example of what, what are you really trying to get out of your, your training in your body? Is it performance-related uh, goals or are they aesthetic-related goals? Because the truth of the matter is, is the best athletes in the world don't care what they look like. They're built for purpose. So it doesn't matter whether they look the part, if they can perform and do the things their body are required to do at the elite level, then they are fit for purpose. And so you need to ask yourself the question, is your priority aesthetics or is it performance? If it's performance, then you need to be doing everything that gives you the edge in whatever sport you're doing. And if there's anything that's taking away from that, uh, and, and that could be aesthetics and looking good because that's a sort of personal ambition of yours, but it, it's hindering your performance in the ring or, or in the octagon or whatever discipline in martial arts you're competing in, then it's time to um, reprioritize and, and focus your efforts on everything that's gonna translate towards um, performing at the optimum level for, for the sport or discipline you're in. Yeah, yeah. If if that is like your number one kind of goal outcome, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Um, yeah, and I think like if your program is including things like, don't know, uh, Olympic lifting variations, jumps, um, movements which perhaps have you moving through like a rotational plane, none of that's going to affect your flexibility. Like, no. It, even if it was a super important factor, it's kind of almost becomes irrelevant because it's not going to impact it anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should work out fine. Yep. Um, what do you reckon? Should we get one more in? Yeah, let's do, let's, let's do one more. Um, let's have a look at... Um, let's try and find what we can answer. By the way, if we, if we run over, it really doesn't matter, does it? No, because it's a down course. a bit. Yeah. Oh, here we go. So, merits of belted versus beltless lifting. Yes. Do you think men over-rely on belts? <laughs> yes. So, I, I think... Um, <laughs> 
if you look at like the evidence that's presented, I don't think there's all that much evidence on um, belts preventing injury, which I think is like what is probably the reason why a lot of people do wear one. Would you agree? There isn't a lot of evidence in belts preventing injury, so yeah. that's why people wear them. Yeah, so like you know, quite often people wear a belt because they think it's going to protect their back. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And ultimately, you're saying there's no evidence to really suggest that that yeah. is the case. Exactly. Very difficult to test, isn't it? Of course, because you don't. If you get an injury, you don't know what whether you would have got an injury not wearing a belt. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a difficult kind of study to set up, isn't it? There's definitely a feeling of it's almost like having an invisible spotter for certain lifts. You feel that that compression around the middle, see it like you're spotting someone in the squat and you just feel those hands underneath you. Psychologically, you feel a level of safety that you maybe didn't feel before. Whether that's a... Um, a uh, psychological thing? Yeah, what's the placebo effect, essentially, when you're lifting. If that helps you, great. But but we went through a phase where we were both lifting, we were in DC training where we were doing squats and we were, we were deadlifting with, with belts. And I think we then came out of that and found that do you know what when you when you start lifting without although it's takes a bit of time to adapt i feel more comfortable lifting with without now yeah but you have to go through that phase and work out what's um what's best for you but generally speaking to do men over alarm belts I, you see a lot of guys walking around with a belt on top yeah, like to do like lap pull downs and you think yeah. yeah you're not getting anything from that whatsoever yeah if you're one of those lads you get, get rid of the belt you don't need it i mean i think it let's um let's assume the question is related to how you should be wearing a belt. So like say for example doing squat, deadlift, overhead press, bench press right. maybe, the you are very likely to be able to lift more weight wearing one. Again, if you're using it like properly. So if you're using it as like almost like a feedback mechanism for the Valsalva maneuver, so having that big kind of deep deep intra abdominal breath. And then, yeah. And then a squeeze. Bracing, exactly. Yeah. You probably will be able to lift considerably more. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not considerably, but like for most people with a bit of practice you will probably be lifting like i don't know say like one to ten percent more especially given that your 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 sort of core stability is key for those big moves stability in the overhead press the barbell press the the squat the deadlift the 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 stronger your your middle is and the core is the more stable you are through through that movement so it makes sense but ultimately it'd probably be better for you long term get get the core in the middle and that posterior chain strong and rely on your body to, to create that stability rather than an external bit of kit. Yeah, and I, I think one thing to remember, not necessarily just on this as a topic, but not all of the evidence comes to a unique consensus. So in answer to this question, we always like to try and base um, viewpoints on the evidence we've got available. But if it doesn't come to a common consensus, it can be quite difficult to make a actual decision. Yeah. So... In this instance, the best thing to do would be to actually, you know what, just have periods of training without a belt and periods of training with a belt. And then that way you're probably going to get the, the best from both worlds. So if we're a bit unsure whether or not um, wearing a belt hampers the development of your core strength, then just have a period where you're not using it. But then if you're worried about, oh, I'm leaving a little bit of gains on the table by not wearing one and I'll be able to lift a little bit more weight. Obviously, going right back to, I think it was the first question we had today, if you're lifting more weight, you're putting more tension on your muscles, more hypertrophy, greater exposure to um, lifting heavy loads to develop your strength, wearing a belt could be beneficial. Hmm. But if you're wearing a belt, are you then hampering your core strength? So again, just have a period of using a belt. Yeah. So just try and like phase your training where sometimes you are wearing one, sometimes you're not. And I think a really natural way of getting that into your training without too much fuss would be to say, right, during a phase of training where I'm lifting heavier loads, say like you're working in, I don't know, the one to six rep yeah, range, yeah. wear a belt. When you're going through like a more of a hypertrophy phase um, where you're lifting um, loads which enable you to do, say like six plus reps, don't wear one. Yeah. Probably the easiest way to look about it. That's a really good advice. Yeah. Cool. Any more? Um... I reckon it might not be a bad shout to leave it. I think like we've got some other some other questions that kind of just more or less match what we were talking about before. But brilliant starting point for the first episode, I reckon. Yeah, there's there's, a, there's one other question on um, disabled training. Um, we can come on to that next week. Yeah. But yeah, look, I think as as this goes on, we'll get a little bit more specific. You know, we might do episodes on specific exercises, how to perform those exercises, cues, things like that. And 
I think as we go on, we'll we'll get feedback from from you guys on on social media what you liked, if there's anything you, else you want to know, and if we start to get consensus on things that people want to hear about, then we'll get stuck into them. Yeah, and I think we're hoping to get some guests on as well, aren't we? Yeah, we'll try and get a few people on the phone, um, just like athletes and people who are who are sort of in performance to sort of get their opinions on certain things. We'll try and again, if, if we can get specific guests on, we'll get your um, ideas and what you want to hear from them about and uh, yeah that's been good fun mate brilliant nice one so thanks everybody for, for watching and listening um, if you do us a massive favour whatever your sort of preferred social media of choice is if you could just share this give us a tag um, say what you liked about it positivity is always really appreciated um, just helps us just to grow we're, we're really doing this for fun like there's no there's no sort of long term plan or anything here it's yeah. just we're going to get together as and when we can talk about stuff that interesting for us hopefully interesting for you um answer your questions as best we can and just make it what it whatever it becomes yeah absolutely i think if we get this on uh, podcast as well if you could leave us a review and rating that would be much appreciated as well that'd be awesome all right well this has been episode one of chin up keep positive keep well um exercise where you can and uh, and just take care of each other basically because i think at the moment especially in lockdown best thing you do is call your mates um, share your problems, talk to each other, um, keep as positive as you can, and as you said, stick to your routine.